appreciate the opportunity to be with you these days. And uh, we heard uh, about uh, being pressed for time a while ago. Now I'm hoping to be like a mummy myself and get wrapped up in my work. So anyway, um, we will uh, move along into the slides. Now, let me give you a word of introduction on these slides. Basically, what I'm going to do is to take you on a tour of ancient Egypt. And there are a lot of things here that you couldn't see if you went on a tour yourself, but as an archaeologist, I had permission to go into a lot of different places. And these things will all relate to the Word of God, everything that you'll see here. Now, most of the slides taken on site, a few I've taken out of books simply because they were more colorful or easier to do in that way. But uh, without uh, too much further introduction, let's get into the slides uh, this morning. I don't think that's real sharp uh, for us to see, but uh, this is a map of Egypt. And uh, if you look up in the uh, upper portions there of the map, you see the city of Cairo. And uh, then down at the bottom of the map, you will notice the Karnak, Thebes, Luxor region. And most of our slides will come from that region. But right in the middle of the, of the map there, there's a place called Beni Hassan, and we're going to look there uh, as well. Now, any tour of Egypt has to begin with Cairo because this is where you're going to land in the, uh, uh, with the airplane. This is the bustling city of Cairo, biggest city on the African continent. And what you're looking at here on the left-hand side is the Nile Hilton Hotel. I've never stayed there. I've eaten there a number of times. But just to the right of that, see that building in the center uh, with a dome? That is the famous Cairo Museum, which has the greatest collection of Egyptian antiquities of anywhere in the world. Now, the major geographical feature, of course, in Egypt is the Nile River, and here you can see the Nile at sunset. Now, uh, the building that you're looking at right in the center there, that tall uh, tower, uh, that's one of those buildings, like, where, does, where do they have one? Seattle, I think, where they have a restaurant at the top and it revolves around. Well, that's what this is copied after, and, uh, of course, like most things mechanical in Egypt, it doesn't work anymore, so um, they, you can go and eat there, but you can't uh, rotate around now, right outside of the city of Cairo, we have the pyramids. Now, the pyramids have nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, they are much earlier than Abraham. The pyramids were there about 500 years before Abraham was born. But the pyramids were built to be tombs of the kings of the old kingdom period of Egyptian history. This is about uh, 2,800 down to uh, 2,200 or so. In that uh, period of history, uh, this is what the tombs of the kings looked like. This is the biggest of them all, the Great Pyramid. This thing has over 2,300,000 blocks of stone. And uh, it is magnificent. Um, now, uh, as you look at that, uh, realize that the base of the Great Pyramid uh, contains uh, 13 acres. So you could put Westminster Abbey and a few other places inside of the base of this structure. It is magnificent and uh, all built to be the tomb of one man. It is not a landing pad for spaceships. It is not something to sharpen razor blades. And it is not the Bible in stone like you hear sometimes. And some books will claim that is not true. Uh, but this was built to be the tomb of King Khufu in the Old Kingdom. Now, if you're going to climb the Great Pyramid, this is where you'd go up. Uh, every time I've been in Egypt, they wouldn't let me go up because they said you could see too many military installations and all that from the top. Uh, but uh, you don't climb the face of a pyramid. You climb the corners. And uh, I forget what the record is for going up here. It's about a minute. Uh, you can make it up uh, 459 feet to the top uh, pretty easily. Now, originally, the pyramids were all covered with smooth stone, but that was carted away in the Middle Ages when they built the city of Cairo. 
This is a plan of the interior of the Great Pyramid. The whole thing existed uh, for that burial chamber right in the dead center. So you go in the door on the right-hand side, go down a passage, up a couple more passages, and then when you arrive in the central room, which is a good deal smaller, much, much smaller than the room we're sitting in now, uh, that is what the pyramid existed for. And I'm going to take you inside. This is the entrance to the Great Pyramid. You'll look closely, you'll see some people uh, there. Uh, you see uh, Dr. Otto Schaden in the black uh, shirt, and uh, you can't see him closely, but up at the, at the uh, near the entrance, there's a man that taught at uh, Cal State Fullerton, so from out in this area. This is the Grand Gallery, the main passage up into the burial chamber of the pyramid. Now, the whole thing existed for this particular room. This is the burial chamber, and that thing that looks like a big bathtub that you're looking at there is the sarcophagus. That's the big thing like a vault that the coffin of the king would be placed into. Now, some people will tell you that uh, this may not be a tomb because no mummy was ever found in it. Well, in most Egyptian tombs, no mummy has been found because robbers will get in, they will destroy the mummy, they'll steal the mummy, that kind of thing. Uh, long ago, this tomb was robbed and uh, the king's body was removed. And, of course, right near the Great Pyramid is the Sphinx. And here you can see a picture of it. Uh, the Sphinx is not a temple or a tomb. The Sphinx simply is a statue. Uh, you'll notice the nose of the Sphinx is missing. There are all kinds of theories about that. My favorite theory about what happened to the nose is that when Napoleon was in Egypt, back in the uh, late, very late 1790s, uh, Napoleon was an artilleryman, if you know anything about him, and Napoleon decided he'd have a contest. And he would see who could shoot the nose off the Sphinx without damaging anything else. And according to that story, somebody won the bet and, and uh, shot the nose off the Sphinx with a cannon. But we don't know if that's really what happened, but that's the story. Now, this is a general view of the Nile River. As we now leave the Cairo area and we uh, go upriver and we're going to go back in time now uh, to uh, away from modern Cairo and, and away from the pyramids, we're going to look at things pertaining to the scriptures. Now you see uh, three sailboats here. Most river traffic on the Nile is still by sailboat. Uh, those are not pleasure boats. Those are, are uh, hauling goods up and down the river. Now this is a typical Nile village. Life along the Nile has not changed an awful lot since Bible times. If you lived in that village, you would not have electricity in your home, you would not have running water, and you would probably not even have much access to television or automobiles. You'd see automobiles drive through your town occasionally, and there'd be one television set in the village square for people to watch. But uh, basically, life in this particular village is just like it was uh, in many respects in the days of Joseph and in the days of Moses. Now, as we begin our consideration of things biblical, we go back to about the year 2000 B.C. Down on the southern border of Egypt, there was a, uh, an effort made to keep the peoples of Africa out of Egypt, and they built a series of forts along the Nile. This is one of the most famous of those forts. It's called Buhen Fortress. This is considered to be the best example of Egyptian military architecture that we have. If you look at this fort, um, and this would date to just about the days of Abraham, biblically, if you look at this fort, you'll notice that uh, there is a wall and then a second wall. The first wall, the interior wall, has square towers. The outer wall has round towers, and then there's a moat. Now, that uh, structure would have been seen by Joseph, I'm sure, if he traveled to this part of Egypt, but today it's all gone. When they built the Aswan Dam, uh, all of this area was flooded, and this became a big ball of red clay that went down into the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, you can no longer see the Buhen Fortress today. 
Now, if you remember in the Bible, the very first major incident in the book of Genesis involving Egypt is Abraham coming down into the country. Remember, along about Genesis chapter 12, Abraham comes into Egypt and he passes off Sarah, his wife, as his sister. Well, it used to be said by scholars that that couldn't happen. The Bible must be wrong because uh, no foreigner would be welcomed into Egypt like that. But then this particular tomb was discovered. Now, this is located at a place called Beni Hassan, which we saw on the map a little earlier. Uh, but I want to show you a very famous painting in this tomb, which is one of the more important paintings for biblical purposes in ancient Egypt. Here you can see a painting showing a foreigner, the man with the colorful cloak there, being welcomed into Egypt. Now, I don't know. I think and maybe with most of you, your hieroglyphics are a little rusty. So let me do a translation of what this says for you. Um, in this particular case, you would uh, read from left to right at the top of the uh, screen there, uh, because you see, uh, when you read hieroglyphics, you look for people and animals and you read into their faces. That's how you know you would read it left to right. But let me translate across the top for you. It says, coming for the purpose of procuring eye paint or eye cosmetic. And it says, he brought 37 Asiatics, he being the man down there bending over that gazelle or whatever that animal is. Now, this man has come down into Egypt to help the Egyptians, to lead them out to where the mining was good in the Sinai Peninsula to mine the, the uh, minerals that were used in making eye cosmetic. Now, uh, notice uh, a couple things about this man. Notice how different his skin color is from the native Egyptians. Uh, they're trying to show you that he is not an Egyptian. He's from up north. And then it tells us uh, what he is there. The, uh, the Right above that man, bending over that animal, it says he's the ruler of a foreign country and his name is Absha. Good Semitic name. Uh, this man may well be a close relative of the peoples of the Old Testament, uh, the, the Hebrews. But look also at his cloak. I'm reminded when I see that of Joseph's coat of many colors. And you can see how accurate something like that would be. Uh, the son of a chieftain uh, would have a coat like that man is, uh, is wearing. So this painting shows us that indeed a man like Abraham could be welcomed down into Egypt. Now the next major event, as we talked about the other day in chapel, was uh, Joseph being sold into slavery, Genesis chapter 39 or so. And Joseph is sold and we're told uh, that he was uh, brought down and sold for a certain number of pieces of silver. Now don't think of that in terms of coins because the Egyptians did not have coins as we know them today. But what they had was ring money. And here you can see a tomb painting from a little later than the time of Joseph. But here they are weighing out ring money against weights on a scale to make sure that a business transaction is done exactly right. Now, as you look at those rings, the brownish colored ones are gold and the whitish colored ones are silver. So when you read about Joseph being sold for a certain number of pieces of silver, this is doubtless what is being talked about. Now, Joseph served as a slave in the household of Potiphar, as we talked about the other day. And he became eventually steward of Potiphar's household. And here you can see a painting uh, of what an Egyptian steward does. In the upper right-hand corner, and this is not Joseph, we don't have any paintings of Joseph, but in the upper right-hand corner you can see a steward uh, seated uh, in his uh, little shelter there. And what's he doing? He's supervising agricultural work just as Joseph would have done. Uh, notice that they're chopping down trees in the upper register there. They're plowing the ground and they're doing all manner of agricultural work. Now, uh, by the way, when you look at a painting like this, 
you can learn an awful lot about Egyptian farming techniques. And they don't write anything for us about how they did their farming and how they made pottery and all those kinds of things. But specialists who want to study Egyptian crafts and industries, whether it's making pottery or making uh, metal uh, objects or whatever it is, or farming, they will study hundreds of paintings like this. And we can develop a pretty good idea of what Egyptian industry was like. Well, Joseph was thrown into prison, as you remember, and there he met the cupbearer of the king. And this is what a cupbearer did. You can see on the left-hand side is a seated pharaoh. On the right-hand side is a cupbearer pouring liquid into the king's cup. So the title of cupbearer, that job, was a real, legitimate Egyptian job. Well, the cupbearer's dream is kind of interesting. You remember his dream uh, that he has is uh, says that... Uh, he sees himself, again, squeezing grapes uh, into the Pharaoh's cup uh, to give him grape juice. But if you read that account very closely, there's a little detail that, uh, skips, that most people skip. Uh, most people don't pay any attention to it. In that verse in Genesis that talks about uh, the cupbearer's dream, it talks about the grapevine being in three branches. You know that that's exactly accurate to the normal way the Egyptians uh, mounted up their grapevines. Here you can see a couple of Egyptians picking grapes and notice the grapevine, three branches, just like the Bible says. Now eventually the Pharaoh has a dream and calls for Joseph when the cupbearer tells him about his uh, friend Joseph down in prison. And we're told that uh, Joseph, as he's brought up, has to go in and uh, get a shave and get some clean clothes on. And we told you that's an, a legitimate Egyptian custom. Now here you can see... Uh, a scene perhaps that was like uh, when Joseph got his shave. And uh, everybody will recognize this. This is a scene at a barber shop. And this is, by the way, probably the oldest picture in the world of a barber shop. But you can see that uh, barbers are at work. People are sitting there waiting. And uh, Joseph uh, is uh, given, oops, we have that one upside down, but it's just a close. It doesn't matter. It's just a close up of, uh, of Joseph receiving or of someone receiving a haircut just like Joseph would have uh, had. Now, the Egyptians believed very strongly in dreams having meaning, and God tended to use that belief in the case of Egypt. Uh, he communicated to the Egyptians through dreams. But the Egyptians had a lot of dream interpretation books, and this is what they looked like. Now, uh, those of you who are in the uh, Bible backgrounds class this morning, I talked about the three Egyptian scripts, hieroglyphic and hieratic and demotic. You saw hieroglyphic a little earlier. Here is what hieratic looks like. And believe me, if you don't think that's difficult stuff to read, that is very hard. What you have to do is they toss you a, if you're learning this, they toss you a three-volume set of books published in Germany, uh, and you have to page through and look up each symbol through three volumes until you find it, and then uh, you can begin to work with it. But this is part of a dream interpretation book. Of course, that book did no good in the case of uh, Joseph and his dreams. Now, what the dream of the Pharaoh foretold was uh, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Now, this is a scene of what the years of plenty would have been like. Here you can see wheat being harvested in Egypt. And uh, one thing that I want to I uh, clarify for you here a little bit, if you listen to what Hollywood tells you, and uh, if I leave you any message about uh, Egypt in general, outside of things biblical, don't ever believe what Hollywood tells you about Egypt. Uh, believe just the opposite. You know, uh, it, really, they never get it right. But what Hollywood would like us to believe is that the Egyptians were a kind of a mysterious people that were kind of preoccupied with death and mummies and all of that. The fact is the Egyptians were a fun-loving people 
and they couldn't resist, unless it's a religious painting, they couldn't resist putting in something comic into a lot of their paintings. And here you can see, look at that basket of wheat that those two men are carrying. Underneath it, two young girls having a wrestling match. They had to put in something uh, that was lively and fun. Now another picture of the harvesting of grain. This is what it looked like in Egypt during the seven years of plenty, I'm sure. Uh, these paintings are about uh, 500 years later than the days of Joseph, but they certainly show uh, the agricultural wealth of the country of Egypt. And during those years of plenty, they stored up all of the uh, grain and things that they could. Now, for interpreting that dream uh, for the pharaoh, Joseph was promoted to high office, and he was also rewarded by being given a number of things, the most significant of which was a gold chain to wear around his neck. And here you can see an official, it's not Joseph, but here you can see an official, um, he's actually, the uh, hieroglyphics tell you there that he's the mayor of the city of Thebes, but he has one gold chain around his neck, his wife is holding onto his shoulders there, and he has another gold chain on a table in front of him, and yet another one being brought to him by the servants. What he's trying to tell you, if he could talk to you today, was that he was rewarded no less than three times uh, by his king for faithful service. And by the way, that is not a pair of binoculars uh, around his neck. Uh, that is a, a, those are little jars of ointment of some kind that he is uh, wearing there. Notice something else here. Notice how the Egyptians will tend to differentiate between men and women by skin color. The men are supposed to be tough, macho, outdoors guys, so they have the brownish skin. And the women are supposed to stay inside, and so they have the lighter colored skin. Now this one I took out of a book because it was the best picture I could find of this. Uh, here is a picture of an Egyptian chariot. And you remember one of the items Joseph was given uh, was a chariot. So here you can see uh, what an Egyptian chariot looked like. The one thing here that probably isn't accurate for Joseph's time is the number of spokes on the wheel. Uh, Joseph's chariot probably only had four spokes. This one has six, but you can't have everything. Oops, sideways, but that's all right. Um, this is... Uh, a king that I like to call Old Big Ears. Uh, look at his uh, ears. That's typical of Middle Kingdom statues. They don't really do too well with the uh, ears. Uh, they can't quite get them right for some reason. But this is a statue of King Sesostris III, the man who actually knew Joseph, one of the pharaohs during Joseph's time. And here we see a close-up uh, of his face. Actual pharaoh, who is considered, by the way, to be the greatest pharaoh of this period, and I think his greatness was due in large measure to the fact that Joseph was his prime minister. Now, during his time in Egypt, of course, Joseph had opportunity to meet his brothers again. That famine that came spread to other places besides Egypt, and his brothers came down into the country of Egypt looking for food. Now, those brothers, of course, um, uh, would have been Asiatics. They're, they're from Canaan, and they would have met the prime minister. All foreigners coming in, if they were going to meet somebody official, they would meet the prime minister. And here we can see a group of Canaanite men coming in, um, meeting an Egyptian prime minister. And these are not Joseph's actual brothers that you see in this painting, but they would look just like this. This would be a scene uh, much like when Joseph's brothers uh, met with him for the first time. Now, one of the things Joseph did as his brothers came down into Egypt was to invite them over to lunch. And this is a little model that was actually found in an Egyptian tomb showing the activities of preparation of a meal. And again, as I told you, if you're going to study these kinds of things, you don't do it from written texts. You study from models and artistic representations. 
But here you can see they are uh, killing an animal, a steer over here on the left-hand side. They're preparing bread. They're doing all the things uh, to prepare for a meal. And that must have been like this when they prepared lunch for Joseph's brothers. Well, eventually, after reaching the age of 110, Joseph died in Egypt. And here is a painting of an Egyptian funeral. And the people have their arms raised in that gesture of mourning, that gesture of sadness. And I imagine it was sad for all the people of Egypt, Hebrews as well as Egyptians, when Joseph uh, passed away. Now, uh, a scene like this, uh, what it shows is family members. And so uh, you can go through and, and uh, can identify who these people are, the wife and the children and so on of the person uh, who died. Uh, now, uh, when Joseph died, of course, uh, we're told that he was embalmed and put in a coffin in Egypt. Right at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, you find uh, that that uh, happened. And here is a painting of the Egyptian god of the mummies. This is the god Anubis. He has the head of a jackal, the body of a man, uh, and here he is taking care of a mummy. The belief was that this god... Uh, Egyptians didn't realize this god didn't even exist, uh, but this god is taking care of a mummy. Now, one other thing about Joseph, he's 110. There's significance in that age. The Egyptians considered 110 to be the perfect age at which to die. So the Lord allowed Joseph to die at that exact age as a testimony uh, to the people of Egypt. Oops, upside down, but... Uh, uh, that's nice. Anyway, um, this is the mummy of King Seti I. We don't have Joseph's mummy, of course, uh, but this is what an Egyptian mummy looks like. This is the best preserved one that there is. And I imagine when Joseph was mummified, he looked quite a bit like this. Now, one of my favorite slides. I always try to show this to my classes when it's Halloween time, you know, and, and we have uh, time for slides. This is a, the head of a Roman soldier. And this man lived around the time of Christ and died about that time roughly. And they didn't mummify him. They didn't do any preparation of the body, but they just simply put him in the ground. And I just want to show you how well-preserved he can be, you know, if you want to consider that well-preserved. Um, but that is a person who didn't receive any kind of treatment at all. And I don't think he liked having his picture taken. So we'll move on. Now, this is an Egyptian coffin. And we're told that uh, right there at the end of the book of Genesis that uh, Joseph was put into a coffin in Egypt. It probably was a little more primitive coffin style uh, than this one. But here you can see three more Egyptian coffins. And uh, the coffin perhaps looked like this. As I said, a little, little more primitive perhaps. Maybe not quite so shaped like a human being. Uh, that was a later development. But this is what Egyptian coffins generally look like. Now, after the death of Joseph... Um, Years pass. Foreigners come in and conquer the northern part of Egypt. But eventually, Egypt enters into its greatest period of all, the New Kingdom, the time when Egypt was the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And God will deliver his people out of Egypt during the New Kingdom. The Hebrews had been made into slaves. They'd forgotten about Joseph and the wonderful things that he did, and they turned the Hebrews into slaves. Now, I want to just show you a few pictures to uh, indicate to you how great Egypt was during this time. Here is a painting from uh, one of the tombs in that, uh, from that time period, from the New Kingdom, and notice how well-preserved the uh, color is from 3,000 years ago. Uh, that's not too bad a state of preservation. And here's another painting from that period. This one I like because it shows 
the Egyptian concept of part of the last judgment. Uh, notice the scale there, and the uh, god Anubis is there by the scale. On the right-hand side of the scale is a heart, human heart. On the left-hand side is a feather. And the Egyptians believed that when you died, your heart would be weighed against a feather. And of course, every time you'd sinned in life, uh, and their concept of sin is not all that different from the biblical concept, but your heart would get heavier and heavier. And so they believed and understood that no human being could get to heaven on their own. They knew that all had sinned. And so no heart could balance the feather. Now, at that point, they should have repented and turned to the true God, but they did not. Instead, uh, the God Anubis there, if you have the proper documents and you paid enough money, he cheats and fixes the scales for you so that you can get to heaven. Now, most of the slides I've taken in the tombs I took with a flashball, but I want to show you what it's really like in there. This is a time exposure shot uh, done with a Coleman lantern uh, to show you what the tombs are like uh, in most cases. This is the god Osiris, the king of the dead, and uh, he always has green skin, so you can identify him, but he is thought to be the ruler of the next life. Now, there's a lot of great architectural work remaining uh, from the New Kingdom period as well. Here you can see one of the obelisks. Uh, these are like the Washington Monument. They're uh, tall, some of them up to 90 feet tall, made out of one solid piece of stone. And they do beautiful carving work on their pillars. Here you can see lotus flowers and so on in various states of, uh, of coming out and blooming. And here you can see the entrance uh, to one of the temples of ancient Egypt. And I think the modern Egyptians should get credit. They've done a good job of lighting these things up at night. Uh, these are the entrance pylons on either side of the gate to the temple. And you can see one of the great obelisks. And you can see that Egypt was truly uh, a very technically competent civilization. You can see some of the columns of that very temple that I was just showing you. Uh, the smaller columns out front are Roman. So you get an idea of the magnitude of Egyptian architectural work. Beautiful workmanship. And this is the entrance to a huge forest of 134 of these columns at the Karnak Temple. A magnificent place to uh, visit. Here you can see these columns, a forest of them, 134. And uh, I was told, and I can't prove this, but I was told there by some of the guides that 60 people could stand on the top of one of these. And here you can see the top part of these. By the way, uh, when you look at Greek temples or Roman temples or Egyptian temples, we always think they're so majestic because they're such pure, perfect uh, you know, color of the natural stone. They were not that way originally. They were all colored uh, with reds and blues and greens and so on. And if you look toward the top there, on the underside where the weather doesn't get at it, you can see some of the red and blue uh, color is remaining. Now, in case you wonder what these things looked like when they were brand new, this is a model, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is either in the University Museum in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, or it's the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been to so many I can't tell you which, but it, it's a model of what one of these temples would have looked like brand new. Now, as I saw this, the very first thing that came to my mind is I could see the Pharaoh standing there and seeing Moses coming down demanding that uh, he let God's people go. I don't know if that happened in a temple or not. I doubt it, but I could just envision uh, that happening. Now, to show you the greatness of Egypt at this time, um, we ought to look a little bit at the objects from King Tut's tomb. The greatest archaeological discovery of all time comes just a little bit after the days of, of Moses. And here is one of the uh, solid gold death masks. of uh, They were nested inside of each other of King Tut. King Tut didn't amount to much as a king, really. 
died as a fairly young boy, but his tomb was discovered virtually intact in the 1920s from his tomb. And uh, I don't know if anybody in here is into refinishing wood. I'm certainly not. But that wood hasn't been touched up for 3,000 years. Here's King Tut's throne, wood overlaid with gold. And here you can see the scene on the back, all of, of very thin, paper-thin, beaten gold, where the king, King Tut, is seated on his throne, and his wife, the queen, is uh, putting his hand, her hand on his shoulder. Uh, she was, uh, in all probability, his sister as well. She had a tough time of it. She married in succession her father, and he died, then married her brother, and he died, and then she married her grandfather. This is a wig stand. In ancient Egypt, both men and women wore wigs to everything, all parties, uh, ceremonial occasions. And at night, you want to take the wig off and you put it in a box so you have one of these standing beside your bed. And here's a piece of jewelry. As you can see, it is a vulture. The vulture represented motherhood in ancient Egypt. Uh, some people uh, have asked me, uh, are you sure that isn't mother-in-law? But uh, actually not. And again, to show you the greatness of their artistic work, here is the famous sculptured head in the Berlin Museum of Queen Nefertiti, uh, a little bit later than the days of Moses, but in this period of Egypt's greatness. And, and I've looked at a lot of statuary. I've looked at Michelangelo's stuff and the Greeks and the Romans. I don't think anybody ever did any better stuff than this. Now, during the time of this period of slavery, the New Kingdom, Moses was born. God had sent the Deliverer, and we're told that uh, Moses was put down into the bulrushes. Maybe it was a scene like this uh, when he is floated down in that little ark or more probably a scene such as this. Now we're told that Pharaoh's daughter, and we don't know for sure who that was, but it could have been this woman. Pharaoh's daughter removes him from the water and raises him as her own son. Now this is a woman by the name of Hatshepsut. And she ruled as female king of Egypt. A very tough person. She wore the false beard, led the army in person, and was uh, about as tough as you can get. But uh, anyway, she'd be the kind of person that would say, oh, there's a little baby, I'll raise him as my son. And it, it may well be that she is the, the one who does this. Uh, here you can see a temple that she built uh, up against the cliffs at a place called Dira Bahri. It's one of the most beautiful structures you'd ever want to see. Here's an interior part of it. Now I want you to notice something. Look at those columns there. Um, those columns are what we call fluted Doric columns, if you ever study archaeology. Now, I remember when I studied archaeology uh, on the graduate level at a state university, uh, the professor said that the Greeks invented this kind of column. Here they are a thousand years before the Greeks built anything. The Greeks copied the Egyptians in the style of column. Now, eventually, this man came to the throne of Egypt. This is King Tutmosis III, 1504 to 1450 B.C., reigned 54 years as king, and this man fought many, many wars without a defeat. He is uh, the greatest warrior pharaoh that Egypt ever had. And this man, according to the dates given to us in Scripture, this man ought to be right at the height of the bondage of the children of Israel. Now, is there any evidence of that? Well, here is one of the things he built. This is a whole wing of the Karnak Temple. They're not building pyramids anymore at this time in their history, but uh, this king built this whole wing of the temple. Here's another section that he uh, built. Now, during this time, of course, you remember that Moses is a young man in Egypt in the court, 
And we don't know that he ever would have been destined to be Pharaoh. You know, there's some talk of that, but we don't know that. But one thing he does see is a Hebrew slave being beaten, and he goes down and he kills the Egyptian and has to flee the country. Well, here is a painting of a slave being beaten to show you that that kind of thing did happen. But I want to show you this tomb. You'll notice it's locked. This is not a Pharaoh's tomb. This is the tomb of a man named Rechmi Ray. Now, Rechmi Ray was the prime minister under that king, Thutmose III. Now, as I say, you notice that's locked. I don't care who you go over there with, what tour you go with, you're not going to get in there. But as an archaeologist, I had a government pass. I flashed it the pass to the guards. They let me in, and I could get in here because in this tomb are what I consider to be the two most significant paintings relating to the Bible in all of Egyptian uh, tombs. Here's the first one. Notice what it shows. And this is the only tomb in all of the 400 tombs in the uh, area around the Valley of the Kings. This is the only tomb that shows foreign slaves making bricks. If you look at these people, they have light-colored skin, light-colored hair, light-colored eyes. These are not Egyptians. And what does the Bible tell us? One of the major things the Hebrews did was making bricks. Here's the second painting from the same tomb. Notice the Egyptian taskmaster in the upper right corner. Notice how different he is. Now, unfortunately, the hieroglyphic text there does not tell us who they are. Because, you see, it'd be like going to visit a farm. Are they going to introduce you to the cattle, uh, tell you their names? No. Uh, slaves were considered on that level, so they're not going to tell you who they are. But it says there that they're making bricks afresh for the Karnak Temple. So these men are making bricks. And I think in this painting and the last one I showed you, there is every reason to believe that you're looking at the Hebrews in bondage in Egypt. Well, Moses demanded that God's people be released. They were not released. And so the Lord brought a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. Now, don't expect the Egyptians to tell you about that. Their defeats. Uh, people in the ancient Near East don't write about their defeats and their catastrophes. It is significant that the Egyptian army isn't any good for a couple of generations after this. But uh, the plagues uh, did affect uh, animal life. Here you can see cattle. Cattle were affected by some of the plagues, as you remember. Uh, one of the plagues was the plague of locusts. Here you can see that the Egyptians were well aware of what a grasshopper was like. The Egyptian word for grasshopper is little thief or little robber. So they knew just what they were like. And one of the plagues was a plague of locusts. But eventually, after the death of the firstborn, um, and the pharaoh at this time is King Amenhotep II, who's the son of Tutmosis III, and his firstborn son, by the way, did not succeed him. So it fits right into what the Bible says. But after the death of the firstborn, the pharaoh says, okay, get out of here. And so uh, the Hebrews went out into the wilderness. And this is what the Egyptian wilderness uh, generally looks like. And it, believe me, it's just as hot, as hot and miserable as it looks. Another shot of what the countryside can be like. And of course, the uh, slaves, the Hebrew slaves, were uh, at times thinking back of the leeks and onions and cucumbers and so on of Egypt and the melons. And here you can see a painting of what they were giving up. Even as slaves, they're going out into that awful desert and they're giving up this kind of food. It took faith on their part. Now the pharaoh suddenly changed his mind. He sends his army out. This is what the Egyptian army looks like. These are what we might call toy soldiers uh, from an Egyptian tomb. You can see they uh, don't have a lot of armor on and so on, but they have bows and arrows. Uh, here you can see another group of these uh, men with spears and shields this time. That's what the army would have looked like. The pharaoh at this time is in all probability this man, Amenhotep II. 
the son of that great Tutmosis III that we looked at uh, or talked about and saw a few minutes ago. Now we're also told that chariots were part of the pursuit uh, and here's what a chariot from that period of time looks like. Incidentally, we have not found the chariots and all of that. Now and then people talk about that. But as you go on in the scriptures, after the days of the Exodus, as we're down now to our last uh, couple of slides, as you read on in the scriptures, there's a great deal prophetically that's said about uh, Egypt. And I would encourage you that that's a fascinating study. Look at a passage like Isaiah 19, uh, for instance, and you will see uh, that there are a lot of things prophesied about Egypt. And one thing is that it will become nothing. It will become a far less significant nation than it had been in its early history. And here you can see, just as we finish up, a couple of slides to show that Egypt indeed is not a great nation any longer. You can see the, the stark uh, desert nature of the country. It is not a great paradise or a strong nation on the earth uh, any longer, just in accord with what Bible prophecy says. No one's worshiping their gods and their kings any longer. Here you can see the sand is blown up uh, over many of the ancient monuments. And that brings us to the conclusion of the slides. Um, we might... Uh, thank you. If uh, anybody has any questions, I'll, I'll be here for a, a few minutes and you can certainly uh, ask them uh, at that time. But uh, I think at this point we will... Uh, call on Dr. Stead to lead us in a closing word of prayer.